When I was five, we moved into a 2,000-square-foot fixer-upper built around 1904. All my friends were terrified of that house. Miss Francis, a descendant of the first owners, insisted it was haunted. My father doesn't believe in ghosts, and my mother was on the fence about them, so the subject wasn't often brought up. My bedroom was at the top of the stairs, right off the landing. Every now and then, lying in bed, I would hear loud thumps coming from the last few steps. I'd wait for whomever it was to pass by my open doors, they'd have to, but no one ever did. I also found it strange the noises always came from just below the landing, not from the first floor working their way up. My parents dismissed this as the house just settling. When I heard it, I would make a cocoon out of my blanket and pretend to be asleep. I had no idea what the sound could be, until one day my father, returning from work, plopped his boots down on the living room floor, something I'd never heard him do. That was the noise from the landing, someone discarding a pair of heavy work boots. My parents also tried to explain away the nightly thumps and scratches coming from the attic above my room. It was probably a cat, they said. Trouble is, often as not, the cat would be accounted for, perched outside my window ledge. The attic frightened me for reasons I can't entirely explain. A sense of dread would overcome me out of the blue nearly every time I ventured up, as though something was waiting in the darkness to pounce on me. One afternoon, I found an old book resting on the staircase. Who put it there, no one seemed to know. The copyright was 1910. A boy's name was handwritten on the inside cover, his last name that of the family who built the home. After this, random household items would go missing and turn up in places we checked at least a dozen times before. Though she tended to chalk this up to St. Anthony, my mom's position began to shift ever so slightly in favor of ghosts. She still got upset, though, when after dark I used the downstairs bathroom instead of the one closest to me. What can I say? The upstairs hallway scared me at night. The light at the top of the stairs was difficult to change, being so high up. When the bulb went out, the near-pitch darkness was just something you had to deal with. Never mind that the hair on the back of my neck would stand on end. Never mind that I could feel someone walking behind me, glaring at the back of my head. My mom thought I was being silly. If there is a ghost here, she'd say, it's probably Miss Francis's grandfather, so there's nothing to worry about. When I was seven, Mom finally experienced something definitive of her own, though we wouldn't be told about it until much later. The house had a back staircase leading up from the dining room. My mom had worked late that night, so Dad had already put us to bed. Walking through the dining room, she saw two little legs and a nightgown rounding the corner up the back stairs. Assuming it was either me or my sister, she called up for us to go to sleep and thought no more of it until after grabbing a quick shower. She crept upstairs to check on us and was bewildered to find me, my sister, and our brother all sleeping soundly in our pajamas, not in anything even remotely resembling nightgowns. When she told Miss Francis about this a few days later, Miss Francis replied solemnly that her great aunt had taken a nasty fall down those stairs as a child and died from her injuries. From then on, Though she pretended otherwise so as not to scare me, I could tell my mother believed. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this... Is Cool Intentions! Yay! We did it! Thank you, Amelia, for that That is a great story. story. Oh my gosh. Oh. I love the idea of the mom being like, no, 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 it's nothing. And then 
so validating but. when the people that are like, no, it's nothing, you're being silly, have their own experience. It's mm-hmm. like, mm, yeah, call it silly now. Right. There were a lot of other, um, there were little kind of other stories that Amelia nested into the one she sent. So you may notice, Amelia, and I apologize that I edited down a lot of things just to kind of focus on the, the house. But you should really think about turning the other stories that were included with it into their own stories. Go a little more in depth. Those were good ones too. I want to hear more about them. Uh, but thank you. It was such a good story. That was a good story. Ooh, ooh, I ooh. love that. You know, oh those gosh. back staircases were called daughter's staircases. Yes. I she said. Yes. And I've, I've neglected to leave that in. But yeah, the daughter's staircase. The daughter's staircase. Or sometimes the servant's staircase. Yeah, sometimes. Too. I love, though, I love a house with two staircases with like, mm-hmm. you know, the main one. It makes you feel one. like there's like a... It's like little, a little hiding little, place. Little secret passageway. Yeah. yeah. I also love a house with a secret passageway. Are you fucking kidding me? That was my dream. When I when I when I was a kid, I saw the movie Clue, of course, who didn't mm-hmm. at that age, because it's like the like it was one of the great defining comedies of my childhood. Same. And it has held up rather well, I think. But man, I had this whole plan that I was gonna build a house just like that when I yes. became rich and famous. Right. And uh Do you still have that plan? Uh no. Oh. No, I think my tastes have changed. It's too Victorian looking in the house. But I still do want a secret passage from yeah. the kitchen to the conservatory. Right. You just want a modern... <laughs> no, it's a, in, in Clue, it's a secret passage to the kitchen. There's a secret passage that leads to the study. And from the billiard room, or is it the lounge, there's one that goes to the conservatory. That's I don't Clue. That, that's, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, from the conservatory, you can reach the lounge. In the kitchen, you can reach the study and vice versa. Uh, Both in the board game and in the film. Right. I remember for the board game because we played the board game too. And then they also did the the VHS cassette tape game where you'd watch a scene. Oh, I remember those. Everyone's like, why is anyone getting murdered in this? (laughs) That's not how it was. It was like, it was almost kind of like a Where's Waldo type of thing. Right. Like you had to like, you'd watch a scene and then you'd be asked like, well, what about details that were in the background? Yeah. And that's how you would solve a murder that you'd never see. God, we should get together and play that. We really, really should. It was really fun. Yeah. Um, We went... To Hall- for Halloween, we went dressed up. I was in Miss Scarlet, and you were uh, the driver. I was the, I was the motorist. The motorist. Because I, I, by the time I, uh, by the time I, I, I was flip flopping on the invitation. By the time I committed, it was everyone already had the good characters. So right. I was like, fine, I'll it go with the motorist. Still really funny because you had a knife oh, yeah, in your back, to, right? Or no, I had bed. a wrench in my head. That's what it was. Because you got killed with the wrench yes. in the lounge right. by Colonel Mustard. Mm. Spoilers. Yeah. That was in one version of the movie. There are there are multiple. There were three ranking. different endings. Yeah. Do you know that when it came when it, when the movie yes. came out, every single theater had a different uh, one of uh, only th- uh, one of three endings and only one. So people like so all these critics saw it going. I don't know the ending and like some like one critic would love it, but they couldn't agree. Like that's not the solution. That Miss Scarlet did it. Like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Colonel Mustard did it, and then so like, and then oh, oh that's the, fun. But the really the the most fun spoilers, everyone. If you haven't seen Clue, what are you doing with your life? Um, uh, <laughs> but spoilers, like the really funny one is that pretty much they all did it. Yeah, and that, that's it is the that final is solution. It's the only one that didn't do it was, was Mr. Green, who was like the one that played my Michael McKean. Oh yeah, yeah. Who was amazing. They were yeah, all amazing. They were all so good. Oh, oh god. Tim so Curry is Wadsworth. It's my spirit animal. <sighs> He mm. really is. But anyway, he that's is. just going down memory lane for Clue and Secret Passages. Watch it um, if you haven't seen it. What is the title for today's episode? Today's title is Mystery and Madness. Mystery and Madness. Oh, it seems appropriate right. for what we're going to talk about. What's it comes it come from? from the book uh, Care of the Soul, A Guide for Cultivating Depth and Sacredness in Everyday Life Mystery by Thomas Moore. Mystery and madness? Mm-hmm. And the whole quote is, it is only through mystery and madness that the soul is revealed. Madness. I, I was so it. mad. She went mad. 
She threw a champagne. Her, yeah, this ah. the champagne flute begins the heart. I'm mad. <laughs> I've gone that, mad. That, that was forever the image I have in mind. I know, me too. Have you gone mad? Yeah. It's champagne. Smash. Yes! You you haven't seen I, me mad. I've just answered that. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's because uh, for, you know, there's a, there's some madness. And it's because because for the both of our stories, there's some mystery and uh, some madness and a lot of it. There's a lot of mystery. And so, and uh, yeah, it just seemed appropriate for both of our things. But my, you're going first, yeah? Yeah, and my story freaked me the fuck out. Oh, wait, no, wait. You're ending. I'm going first because you read the thing. Oh yes, yeah, so you're, yeah. You're going first. Oh, cool. Okay, this is exciting. What's your story? What's your story? What's your so story? So I am doing the Stambovsky versus Ackley ruling. This is the ruling I that. No idea what that is. It's about. Uh, it changed real estate really for hauntings, uh, and oh. created um, a space where people could make rules about. Okay. Uh, what you had to disclose and stuff like that. Ooh. All right, you're ready. Ooh. This is so good. I like. In 1990, so That's pretty recent though. Yeah, for, I for mean, a ghost story. For a ghost story, but it's just wait. Okay. All so right. this, in 1990, Jeffrey and Patrice Stembovsky of New York City put down a $32,500 payment to purchase a home at One La Vida Place in Nyack, New York. Is that how you say it? N Y A C K. Nyack. 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 Let's get. Nyack. I'm gonna say Nyack because Nyack just doesn't. Nyack. It's not a very pleasant name. I'm gonna say Nyack. Where do you live, Nyack? Sounds Nyack. like sounds like a New Nyack, Yorker Nyack. way of saying none of your goddamn business. That's what it is. Nyack, Nyack. <laughs> um, so that was. I meant to look it up, but I forgot. Anyway, so <laughs> they the house was six hundred fifty thousand dollars. They put mm. thirty two five down. The imposing Queen Anne Victorian home was built in 1890, had five bedrooms, three and a half baths, approximately 4,628 square feet, and was perched right on the bank of Hudson River. Ew. Waterfront property. That's good. That's in uh, New York, my God. Yeah, That's, it uh, used to be red, and now it's blue, and it's so fucking cute. Mm. Um, how, huge, but cute, right? Yeah. Imposing, but... So cute. Like, imposing but quaint. But baby blue makes everything adorable. Imposing in a quaint kind of <laughs> and way. quaint, yes. Imperious and patrician, but adorably Ad- approachable. Adorable. <laughs> Haunted but lovely. Um, however, not long after putting down the deposit, a local architect said to Jeffrey... Oh, you're buying the haunted house. And Jeffrey was like, what? <laughs> I am? Uh, apparently, the home he had just purchased was notoriously haunted with three possible poltergeists. Since the couple was not from Nyack, they... (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get loose. I know. I'm I'm apologizing. I don't know how to... I should have looked. Nyack. They were not aware of the haunting, and the owner, Helen Ackley, had certainly not said anything to them about it. Well, I mean... Yeah. However, Ackley had reported the existence of ghosts in the house to both Reader's Digest and a local newspaper on three separate occasions between 1977 and 1989 when the house was included on a five-home walking tour of the city. Maybe she didn't feel she had to disclose? Because it's like, well, it's been published. That's like telling you it's on the Hudson. It's fucking clearly on the Hudson. Right. But... Maybe, Maybe I'm... 
Maybe that was her defense. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you really should tell people if your house is haunted. Right. I agree. But everyone in the, in the city <laughs> knew this house was haunted. Everybody knew it was. It was only when Ackley was trying to sell the home that she got quiet about the haunting. Oh. In fact, she made absolutely no attempts to disclose this information to potential buyers whatsoever. Uh-oh. Real quiet about it. Helen Ackley, let's talk about her a little bit. Okay. She and her husband, George, originally purchased the house in the late 1960s. So they had been there for, you know, 25, 30 years. Mm. And they shared the home with their four children, Cynthia, George, Kara, and William. The house had been vacant and was in disrepair when the Ackleys moved in. So, of course, local kids told them the house was haunted. I mean, look at it. It's creepy as fuck. And according <laughs> to Helen, though, the kids were right. Hmm. It's important to note that Nyak is approximately, (laughs) we have to look that up. Uh, It's approximately 20 miles north of New York City on the west bank of the Hudson. The Hudson Valley is widely known for its many haunted places. Straight across the river lays Terrytown, and just outside of Terrytown is the legendary Sleepy Hollow. Ooh, oh. Yes. In fact, many of Washington <laughs> Irving's tales are based on legends of the lower Hudson Valley. <laughs> Helen Ackley's first experience with whatever was in her house happened not long after they moved in. She was on top of an eight-foot ladder painting her living room ceiling when she glanced at the fireplace and saw a man. He had white hair and was wearing a colonial-style suit, complete with a white shirt and puffy cuffs. <laughs> According to Helen, he was rocking back and forth, but there wasn't a chair. Oh. I told him I hoped he liked what we're doing to the house, and I hoped he liked the color. He smiled at me and nodded. I took that to mean he was glad. Helen soon began reporting to her neighbors that she was hearing footsteps, knocking, and doors opening and closing with no possible explanation. It wasn't until a decade later that she would write an article with her family about their experiences in the Reader's Digest of May 1977. Hmm. In that article... The Ackleys talked about living with three benevolent spirits. Helen described her first encounter, of course. She also said one of the other ghosts would waltz into her daughter's bedroom. We don't know whether or not she was the one who woke the children up by shaking the bed, she said. Ghost number three was apparently a Navy lieutenant during the American Revolution. According to Helen, my son saw him eyeball to eyeball outside the basement door. Fuck The Ackleys claimed that the spirits would often gift them strange items that would spontaneously appear throughout the house. It's like when a pet brings you a dead bird or something, and they're like, it's for you. They were better. These gifts were better, but we'll get there. Okay, that's good. Mark Cavanaugh, who married Cynthia Ackley, wrote about his experience uh, of the paranormal activity in the home as well in an article titled Ghost of Nyak. Background about the house. (laughs) Nyack. I really want Nyack to replace Nyack. Yeet with the kids. Like, right, Nyack. This bottle's empty. Nyack. Like right. that. <laughs> it's fun to say like that. It I don't is know fun. if it's. Nyack. It surely is. I right. apologize to everyone that lives there. I, yeah. I really do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell the headless horseman about it. So I had two personal experiences. This is him. I had two personal experiences with the, the headless ghosts. horseman? No, not, no. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's happened to Mark now, but Mark Kavanaugh. I had two personal experiences with the ghosts. They both happened soon after I moved in with my future wife, Cynthia, and occurred about one month apart. The first happened on Christmas Eve. I was home alone due to various activities. I was playing Christmas Elf in the living room, putting gifts together. It was totally quiet in the house. 
After a while, I kept hearing a muffled conversation coming from the dining room around the wall. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring except whatever the fuck was making exactly. conversation in the next goddamn room. I hope he said that to himself at the time. <laughs> I would get up and walk over and nobody was there. I felt like I was being watched. I had purposely turned on every light in the surrounding rooms. I was getting nervous. Then my future brother-in-law suddenly pounded on the door, making me jump out of my skin, and the talking stopped. <laughs> the second incident happened in our bedroom on the third floor. It was a clear, dark night. That rap is in my head now. Uh, <laughs> I just imagine the ghosts are having the, the conversation, dark. like hear him scream or yelp when it's... When the guy scares them yeah. and they all, I just imagine the ghost going, shh, did you fucking hear that? Yeah. <laughs> right. What's that? Um, Cynthia had already fallen asleep and I was drifting. Then I heard the bedroom door creak and the floorboards squeak. My back was to the edge of the bed. Suddenly, the edge of the bed by my midsection was depressed down and I felt something lean against me. I went literally stone stiff. I was speechless and could hardly move. I was able to twist my neck around enough to see a womanly figure in a soft dress through the moonlight from the bay windows. I felt like she was looking straight at me. After about a minute, the presence got up and walked back out of the room. I finally relaxed enough to shake my wife out of a sound sleep, acting like a toddler who just had a nightmare. Cavanaugh mm. hmm. later mm, reflected... When they okay. come into your bed, when they come right. to your bed. When they sit next to you and look at you. Like, oh, what, am I supposed to hashtag fucking bed close. now, too? Come on, give me something. Also too close. Um, Kavanaugh later reflected on the incidents that he experienced and came to the conclusion that the ghosts were evaluating him to make sure he was a good suitor for Cynthia. Hmm. The family didn't consider any of their paranormal experiences to be particularly terrifying. In fact, <laughs> Helen felt the poltergeists were friendly and even generous at times. Helen said, I feel comforted by their presence. I feel protected. You've got to enjoy a house like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, fair. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I would feel very, I would, I would think a haunted house is very cozy if the ghosts are just kind of hanging out and being chill. Right. And I have some of and the other reported assholes. experiences. Mm -hmm. On several occasions, including one daughter's wedding and on a granddaughter's christening, the kind-natured spirits left little gifts of silver or gold rings on the bedside table. Helen said they left gifts. My two older granddaughters received rings. We had scoured the area shopping for baby rings and we couldn't find anything. Then we found a baby ring on the table in one bedroom. It fit perfectly. The same thing happened with the second child. The rings would later disappear. Helen's daughter-in-law was gifted disappearing coins in the same manner and Cynthia as an adult claimed to receive silver sugar tongs. I know, very strange. It's kind of random. It's, that is, that's so random. I know, but here's just random I mean, they're very trinkets. thoughtful gifts. Yeah. I want to create like a ghost registry. Like, I'm like, yeah. hey, any ghosts that are interested in giving me stuff, I will totally accept cash. These trinkets. Um, or um, Cuisinart. <laughs> um, in addition to the gifts, Helen's children's beds would be shaken in the mornings as if to wake the kids up in time to get ready for school. It was so dependable that her kids would announce the night before that there was no school the following day, so the ghosts would allow them to sleep in. So if it was like spring break, <laughs> they would say, Like, there's, not, uh, there's no school We tomorrow. don't have to wake up early, because otherwise they would be shaken awake. 
I imagine. I imagine like the kids trying to pull that one morning when there is school, and like as they go to bed, mom overhears them and goes like, "Actually, they're lying. They do they're have full school of tomorrow." Shit. Yeah, <laughs> mom. Uh, come on, <laughs> Helen. Um, in 1993, after she'd left the home, she was contacted by paranormal researcher Bill Merrill and medium Glenn Johnson, who claimed to have already made contact with two of the spirits at the house. The pair met with Helen and disclosed that the couple were likely the poltergeists of Sir George and Lady Margaret, who lived in the region in the 18th century. Hmm. Of course, we know that they would have been the spirits of Sir George and Lady Margaret, not poltergeists. I wonder if that's not how poltergeists work. The rest, he's like, I got silver tongs, I got coins, I got a rock. So I find it strange, (laughs) though, that like this random couple contacts her and like, we know who's haunting your house Mm. because I guess they had gone near it or something i didn't read a book but they did write a book in 95 uh marilyn johnson published a book about their findings entitled sir george the ghost of (laughs) 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 i'm just i'm just developing this is going to be the theme we develop throughout your entire story Uh is nyak how many how many things can we make nyak and now it sounds like a weird villain quirk yeah, like they're having work. a nyak attack. You haven't seen the last of Sir George. Nyak. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Except he's like, he's he's nice. Um, <laughs> well, that's a good thing. So one of the questions is, you know, could they have been influenced by pop culture and the supernatural trend at the time? That was something because at mm-hmm. the late 70s in particular, oh, you have Amityville. You know, it was crazy. They keep using the term poltergeist when that's not really what it was. Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. it poltergeist? My so God, you make one fucking thump and you're a poltergeist. I Jesus. Know. You saw me, bitch. You saw me. Okay, so... There's a person here. I know. There was a person (laughs) here. Look, just like this. So, 1977. That's Mm. when that article came out, when she first published, Mm. went to somebody. Poltergeist did not come out until 1982. Yep. And Amityville Horror, which was my main concern, like, is this going to be... But that didn't come out until 1979. Mm-hmm. The movie didn't. The book was written in 1977, but it wasn't published until September of that year. Mm-hmm. So she had her article four months before that article, which tells me that not only did, was she not influenced by the Amityville book, mm-hmm. Amityville was not influenced by her either. Mm. Yeah. Just something interesting. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a... Yeah. Now they could have been other solid articles. Research, Jamie. Thank Good you. On you. There could have been other you. articles that maybe they were reading or something like that. But there could have been, and there was a ghost craze. But that doesn't right. mean that stuff wasn't happening. That just means people were now like, oh, okay, I've been ignoring all that shit right. in my home because I didn't know what it was, and now it's like, oh, well, that seems like that fits. That could be possible. Yeah. 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 So okay, Helen's husband George passed away sadly in 1978, hmm. less than a year after the haunting story first appeared in the Reader's Digest. Hmm. He was 57. He was pretty young. Oh. He died, actually, in an area hospital after a heart surgery, so his death was not in the home. Mm. However, there was a death in the home sometime afterward when a relatively young and otherwise healthy dinner guest died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. Oh. Oh, God. That's terrifying. The idea of those terrified me. Yeah. Yeah. By 1989, Helen had to put the house on the market because she couldn't afford to pay the taxes. Yeah. And, like, her... I think a couple of her kids and their spouses and then her grandkids all lived there at the same time, too. Mm. Maybe she was just like, fucking get out of my house. I'm going to have to sell it because I can't have all these people in my house anymore. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not. Uh, so now we'll go back to Jeffrey and Patrice Stambovsky. Stambovsky. Jeffrey decided these extra tenants, real or not, 
Um, he did not necessarily believe in them, but he did feel like they, the rumored haunting would damage the home's resale value. Hmm. And so he filed an action requesting cancellation of the sale as well as damages for fraudulent representation by Helen Ackley and Ellis Realty. So basically, uh, this was before closing he found out about the haunting. And he was like, hold up. You can't. I'm not buying this house. And uh, because he wanted his deposit back, he filed Uh, these charges to get that $32,500 back. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. After, because, and it's because they failed to disclose that the house was haunted. The Stambovskis did not attend the closing, which is important. Uh, so that caused the forfeiture of the down payment, right? They okay. didn't, they weren't obligated to buy the house because they didn't sell it, sign the paperwork, but because they didn't they show didn't up, to, the- they had to, yeah, let go of that 32.5. Mm. So that's what he wanted back. He was like, hell no, I want that back. Hmm. So he sued. During the first trial in 1991, a New York Supreme Court or a trial court. It was a civil trial court. Okay. Uh, something fucking crazy happened. Mm-hmm. The court found that the house was legally haunted. I, what? Yes. So, like, they they afforded, they accorded a status to mm-hmm. how, like, the how we find, we the jury. Yes. <laughs> find we, the, the justices. There were justices. Legally, or the, we the justices yeah. find. Three out of five justices How validating was that for Sir George and Mary? I know. (laughs) They're going, thank you. Sometimes the legal system works. That's right. You just have to be Um, (laughs) They agreed that having reported the ghost's presence in both a national publication and the local press, the defendant, Helen, is stopped to deny their existence and, as a matter of law, the house is haunted. Man. Yeah. However, even though the house was found to be haunted, the court still dismissed the case, stating that the realtor was under no duty to disclose the haunting to potential buyers. Thus, no damages were available to Stambovsky because New York at the time adhered to a property law doctrine of caveat emptor. That's also buyer beware. Buyer beware yeah. 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 The Stambovskys appealed, and the appellate court reversed the trial court's decision, hmm. noting that haunting was not a condition that a buyer or a potential buyer of real property can and should be able to ascertain upon reasonable inspection of the property. Mm. Uh, According to the court, buyer beware is great and all, but, and I quote, the most meticulous inspection and the search would not reveal the presence of poltergeists at the premises or unearth the property's ghoulish reputation in the community. Basically, hmm. no standard inspection would know that the shit was haunted. The yeah, case, the guy that comes to check the fucking plumbing isn't going to be like, I don't, that's not my yeah. fucking job to look for a goddamn right. ghost. You, and there's, you, yeah. So the case generated considerable publicity and area real estate agents had between 25 and 50 potential buyers calling within a week of the court's decision. Helen sold the house in 1991 and moved to Florida. She died in 2003, and her son-in-law lays odds that her spirit has taken up residence back at one Ackley place. However, there have not been public reports of hauntings in recent years. That makes me think that she just left out the ghost part because not that she was trying to get away from anything or with anything, but rather maybe just because she was like, well, I want someone to buy this house because they love it, not not because it's haunted. Yeah. Because I imagine, because that's the thing, like, it's not... I don't imagine it is terribly difficult to, especially now in the past, since the 70s, I don't right. think it's very difficult 
Well, seventies and eighties, it was Be just because you know people are like, oh my god, we can because people think I can make a mint off this. I can like have experiences, write about yeah. them. I mean, like people see it as a cash cow. I mean, now maybe you know whatever. So I don't. I feel like you know because it I, depends on if it's whether it's it's well received or mm-hmm. if it's you know becomes a stigmatized thing that it just depends know, because there's always product. someone that wants to buy that house. Yeah. That's and, true, and, and they be did. And because they did. it, and it was like what and seven buyers came up. Yeah, there was a one guy that was a um, mentalist. I guess he was interested in it, and he yeah. ended up not buying it. It went to somebody else. Mm. Uh, but she said when she left that she was taking her ghosts with her. <laughs> which I we're all going to Florida. We're all going, and there's some some thought too that her husband, the uh, another George, was haunting it as well. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. So, but her whole thing was that they were they all went they 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 went with her because they were attached to her. Hmm. I hope so. Yeah, I like that. Most recently, the house sold on January eighth, two thousand sixteen. Oh, very recent. For more than six hundred thousand dollars above comparable homes in Nyack, according to Trulia. Oh my god! Fetching one point seven million dollars. One million seven hundred seventy thousand dollars. That makes me want to go Nyack. 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 Yeah. The best part about the court's opinion in this case is that it makes reference to a number of popular books and films featuring ghosts and uses supernatural idioms throughout the ruling. Oh, yeah. For example, (laughs) plaintiff has a ghost of a chance. (laughs) And, yeah. What a fun trial that had been. (laughs) I know. It's not over yet. Um, Also, I am moved by the spirit of equity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, so how much money were you putting in escrow? Escrow, like, yeah. Oh um, my god! I just and, can, can I just picture the lawyers like dressed as ghosts in mm-hmm. the courtroom, just like just have fun with it. It's like Halloween. I want to believe that the judges put on wigs and everything just to get into get the character. Character, yeah. So the notion. This is another it's like one. night court, right? Oh my <laughs> like god, an episode of night court. Oh um, my god, I would love it. Another quote, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exercised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest. (laughs) (laughs) And last but not least. (laughs) Are you over it? I'm sorry, this is great. I just love it. I'm just now, now my brain is like. Just cycling through all these possibilities. like uh-huh. oh They had God. fun with it. These these judges had fun with it. So, okay, last but not least, the court makes the point that, unlike a pest infestation, you can't just get an exterminator to take out a, you know, a poltergeist. This quote is what gave the court ruling its nickname. Uh. From the perspective of the person in the position of plaintiff herein, a very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the story of Stambowski versus Ackley, or as it is more popularly known, the Ghostbusters ruling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. Yeah. So, okay. Who are you going to call? That's, oh, that's yeah, I loved it. So I died when I was like, cracking up when I was oh, reading that. It was oh so funny. God. Okay, as far as disclosures go now, it varies from state to state. Like in Mm -hmm. California, sellers must reveal if a death in the home has occurred any time in the past three years, including death by natural causes. Although certain types of death, like those from AIDS, cannot be disclosed. Which this was fascinating to me. Like they can't disclose the nature of the death? Yes. But they have to disclose that a death occurred, Um, not how? With AIDS, it's it's mixed. Because 
it became stigmatized, and in some states it still mm. is, that if somebody who is even in the house with AIDS, especially in the 80s, oh, yeah, when everyone's they, open, yeah. you can't sell the house. This, oh, you, wow. They like, it's almost like how you have to disclose that it was a meth lab because it is a, a se- severe health mm-hmm, risk. Mm-hmm. They would have to disclose that somebody who wow. who was in so that house. before they understood the disease and they yeah, thought and how it worked and everything. Sure how it had spread. no idea. Most Man. states, like I know Texas has this. Um, so if somebody in the house has AIDS or they died of AIDS in the mm-hmm. house, I'm pretty sure you don't have to disclose that ever. Weird. Ever. Because it had such a negative. Yeah. A horrible mm. effect in the 80s so it's mm. like all right we're gonna not be like that anymore hmm. so That's they've they've gone out of their sad, way very sad but fascinating um now if a buyer comes out and asks about a death that occurred at any time even longer than three years ago the seller is required to provide a truthful response however in alaska and south dakota murders or suicides must be disclosed only if they happened within the past year in oh other, wow i know there's, there, well okay there's yeah Ollie, ollie, oxen free. It's fine. In, uh-huh. In other states, the laws are less black and white. A seller may need to disclose the information only if a buyer asks, which is what my understanding is about Dallas mm. or Texas. Other states require disclose. Uh, other states require disclosure only if the house is stigmatized, like I was saying, by the mm. event. As in, activity would affect the resale value of the home. For example mass murders in the home, yeah. famous hauntings, etc. Things that would make people be like, fuck that. Mm. You yeah. Know, yeah. That or that energy is really bad. Or, you know, uh Amityville, the stuff that, you know, a, a multiple <laughs> family. Surprising the industry has not arose of like of people like going like a realtor's going, I have a friend of mine who will come and look at the house and like see if they feel anything. Right. Like a I'm like you I think know, there are websites where you can look to buy a haunted house. They'll show you which yeah. houses are haunted. But are there services you can employ of people to go into a house you're thinking about buying to see like, if they get an impression? It's called Ghostbusters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think though most states, from what I saw, if you ask a question directly, the owner has to answer truthfully. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's just a good policy regardless. Yeah, generally. But if you are in the market for a house, double check with your real estate agent just in case because it is wildly different from state yeah. to state what they have. But if you are curious and have an extra 12 bucks to spend, <laughs> there is a site called diedinhouse.com <laughs> that will let you know if someone has passed away in your home. To be fair, most they only do a lot of the records that are online so um, and the big stuff. So... You know, it's from the 80s forwards, maybe late mm-hmm. 70s forward. Yeah. And I think they're trying to incorporate more of that. But if you have a really old home, it's probably just safe to to believe that somebody died in yeah, there. Yeah, if your home is older than 80 right. years old, like someone fucking died in there. I don't yeah. care. But the other thing to keep in mind, and we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, is like my house, where I live right now, um, there is something's going on. And I did this on my house mm-hmm. a while ago, and mm-hmm. it came up as nothing. But... For enfranchised folks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for people who have a tendency to run under the radar, you yeah. know, with there's there's drugs involved or, you know, yeah. I mean, criminal violence. There, if someone died like on this you know. property, you know, at a time when this was a flop house or, or right. something like that, like, yeah. would, would it be known? I mean, it's just, it's, that's the kind of thing. Like, I, you never really know. You never know. And that's mm-hmm. the thing with this house, too, is um, the... <laughs> There's a lot of information about my home, but, uh, it was really great when it was first opened mm-hmm. and then, um, when they first were homes and then, uh, all of the people left en masse and they became slums mm. and 
I guess about 15 years ago or mm-hmm. something, people bought, they gutted them because the city was changing this yeah. area because this area used to be really dangerous. Mm. Uh, the city demanded <laughs> that uh, certain things be met. And so the company that owned them went, uh, decided bankruptcy or mm-hmm. foreclosure. They foreclosed on it because they didn't want to deal, they didn't want to make any of the changes. And so somebody came in and bought them, gutted them all, and sold them to investors. It took 10 years for the investors to actually start redoing mm. the homes. But I think, you know, they got a townhouse for $50,000 at the time, you know, and then they yeah. could put everything into it and sell it. But <laughs> the uh, my neighbor who's been here for quite a while, she told me that she and some of the, other, the few other people when they first moved in you know, 10 plus years ago mm-hmm. that, cause they, they redid them themselves, but they would have to board up the doors and the windows because, uh, drug runners and prostitutes yeah. would use these townhouses mm-hmm. for their services. Oh, yeah. And I live there now. This is where hey, I live. You live here um, now. so there's really no well, it's much nicer now, but you have to, right? there's no way of knowing what happened. Oh yeah. Then. It's beyond much nicer now. It's like yeah. a great area. So much <laughs> nicer, yeah. but there is just, there is no way of knowing mm-hmm. what, what went down yeah. here because literally had, uh, they were just, it was completely off the radar. Yeah. So we long. had, we had, uh, problems with our drain when we first moved in mm-hmm. and when they cleared it all out, we had to get the camera thing and go through it. And there were literal, there was crack paraphernalia in the pipes. So my joke on that is always, I don't know if I've said this before, I say it all the time, but uh, we didn't have a crack in our pipes. We had crack in our pipes. Um, (laughs) Not our crack, just crack. Yeah, diedinhouse.com. So... That's just if you want to check it out and see it's twelve it's eleven ninety nine or something. I gotta check it out. And it's and if you get like I think if you do three different addresses, you can it's like thirty dollars, so it gets a little cheaper yeah, or something. Twenty seven dollars. They cut you a deal. Yeah. The more yeah, you do. So go in with somebody and Well, thank you for sharing all that info. No that was really fun. I didn't I man, I'm it so cracks me up. I'm so interested when hauntings make it into like the courts. I know. Like it's just like, okay, all right. So the ghost is now a witness. Okay. You know, it's Yeah, it's two of my favorite things in court. The pop culture references uh-huh. and And ghosts. And ghosts. Oh my god. Yeah, I love it. So It'd be really funny. I'm waiting for one day and it's gonna happen. I'm waiting for someone who's haunted or who lives in a haunted house rather to sue the descendants of the ghost for damages. <laughs> I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. Like, yeah, just wait. People will sue for anything, God. anything. Uh, <laughs> we are a litigious culture. Yeah. yeah. All right. So my story. I'm going to tell my story. Do you okay. need a pee break first? I think I'm all right. I'm okay too. Yeah. Weird. This is What's exciting. Going on? Um. All right. Here we go. Strap yeah. in, because it's. It's terrifying and I'm tragic so ready. and all the things. I, I, if I have to pee while you tell it, we'll just take a break then. Okay. 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 You, I'm may, sorry. you may need to pee before it's over, um, just because it's like, oh, oh. I this when I was researching this, I was it it, it messed with me. So mine is: Have you ever heard of the disappearance of Dennis Martin? No. Okay. Well. Not until you said that's what you were doing. Here we go. Okay. Uh, I didn't even Google it, so I know nothing. Yeah, and there's there's quite a bit uh, on it. Um, there's even a little wiki, Wikipedia page dedicated to it. Not dedicated. There's like some information, and I had to do some digging because there's a lot of stuff. Um, I'm going to refer to Dennis's uh, father, Mr. Martin, who is a key player in this drama, uh, only as Mr. Martin because his real name has been withheld. Uh, oh, just wow. yeah, it's it's a 
Yeah, you'll you'll see as we get going why. Okay. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, hundreds of people in our national parks across the country every year, and they never come out. It's just a thing. It happens. Like some people get lost and die of exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, some slip and fall, say off a cliff. Um, other people some get, get eaten by, by bears, by bears or mountain lions. Yeah. Um, I mean, the wilderness is very beautiful, but it's unforgiving and does not give a shit. And to most things, you are tasty. So, I mean, that's just how it is. But some disappearances, however, suggest that there is more to Mother Nature than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. Of these, the now almost 50-year-old case of little Dennis Martin um, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park remains probably the most unsettling example, and here's why. So, June 14th, 1969, Mr. Martin, Dennis's father, had taken his two sons and their grandfather to the park for Father's Day weekend. Now, they had spent the night before in Cade's Cove and uh, camped out in Russell Field, and so now the quartet of Martins was three generations worth in all bear in mind, so it was like Mr. Martin, his two sons, and Grandpa Martin. Okay. Uh, you know, all the four, you know, these four Martins, three generations worth, and they had kind of schlepped, hiked on, and now we're going to spend the afternoon uh, in a place in the park called Spence Fields, um, and which sits along the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. It's an important point because we'll get into the the issue of state lines here in a moment. Um, now, it's an appreciable expanse of wilderness in its own right within the park, but Spence Field is not thought to be a high risk area. Um, mm-hmm. this is presumably, I mean, inexperienced hikers and day visitors go there all the time to this day. Now, uh, this is presumably... So it's for, like, it's a place where inexperienced hikers can mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. It's pretty walk. open. Um, there, it's bordered by forest, but, you know, and it's basically a field of shrubs. Okay. And it's pretty open. Like, if you go and look at pictures of it, you're like, okay, yeah, this is this is a fun place to kind of just romp around, frolic, you know. And it's presumably why Mr. Martin felt comfortable letting six-year-old Dennis and his nine-year-old brother play at the field's edge near the tree line some distance away from where he and Grandpa Martin were watching. Now, bizarrely enough, just by sheer coincidence, it just so happened another man with the last name Martin brought his young son to Spence Field that afternoon and casually joined the other two men while their boys all mingled amid the bushes playing hide-and-seek. Weird coincidence, that. Oh, hey, I'm, my name's Martin, too. Oh, cool, this is my son. Strange. Very odd. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of weird coincidences about this case. Just so I'm hitting you with a lot of details, but feel free to stop me and clarify at any moment because there's a, just a whole fucking avalanche of them. Okay. So around 4 p.m., little Dennis dove behind a bush uh, intending to jump out and scare his companions as they skulked by. His father had been watching him do this for a while now, so the, the, a pattern was set. Dennis would, you know, take cover, the other boys would pretend not to notice, and the six-year-old would spring out, surprise them, and then run off to find other shrub, and, uh, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. That was just the game they were playing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the shrub he was hiding behind at this particular moment was a decent stretch from where the elder Martins stood, but solitary enough that Dennis couldn't have abandoned his hiding place without being seen. Oddly, however, this time he didn't emerge as the other children passed by. Um, After five minutes with no sign of Dennis, faint alarm bells started going off in the back of Mr. Martin's mind, and he walked over to make sure his little boy was okay. Dennis was gone. Hmm. Uh, 
Um, now, figuring the boy had somehow darted down a nearby trail into the woods, though how he could have done so without being seen was a mystery, Mr. Martin sprinted down the path at full tilt, calling Dennis's name at the top of his voice. The ex-military man, who was in good shape and who had an eagle eye, sprinted for almost two full miles, oh not gosh. once encountering a trace of his son. When at last he reached farther than any six-year-old could have conceivably wandered on his own, Mr. Martin ran back to Spence Field, told his father to contact the park rangers down the hill, and resumed his frantic search. Now, so that's that's right. going on there at Spence Field. Now, about two hours later, roughly five miles away, near Rowan Creek in the park, a guy named Mr. Key and his wife had taken their little boy into the woods, hoping to catch the glimpse uh, of a bear, an animal that their little boy was absolutely obsessed with, right? And they'd apparently talked to one of the rangers, and was like, where's a good place to see, a, like, a bear? And they're like, oh, just go along Rowan Creek. They, they hang out there a lot, so, right. you know, and as long as you're safe. keep your distance. Yeah, keep your distance. Yeah. And so that's what, that's what they were doing. As they followed the creek, um, uh, Mr. Uh, they heard what Mr. Key later described as an enormous, quote, an enormous sickening scream echoing through the trees. Now, moments after this, their son excitedly pointed and insisted he could see a bear lurking up the hill. Mr. Key saw, but disagreed with his son's assessment. Bears, in his experience, didn't walk upright like that. Bears generally weren't shaped like humans, and bears didn't move so strangely. He would later tell reporter Carson Brewer of the Knoxville News Sentinel that the figure they saw resembled a large, shaggy man, quote, in fur, end quote, awkwardly negotiating the ridgeline about 30 yards from where they stood. Uh, as if aware of being seen, the figure hunched down, clearly trying to hide something else bears aren't known to do. Understandably, the Key family thought better of investigating and turned back the way they came. Yeah, bears are more like, what? Right. Yeah. So they were like, okay, well, there's, there's a weird-looking dude over there, and who's clearly hiding, and we just heard a scream, we're gonna go back! Right. That is disturbing. Yeah, this was two hours after Dennis went missing. I mean, obviously... only five miles away. Yeah. Right. This and two hours after? Two hours after Dennis was last the, seen. And the implication, of course, is, you know, it's Bigfooty kind of thing. Right. Oh, we'll get in there. The, we'll get to the that. The Squatch. But just thinking about it, looking, can you imagine seeing somebody wearing a Bigfoot, like, outfit? Like, mm, mm. and and walking around and hiding from you, that's creepier than an actual Bigfoot. I'm like, whatever the fuck that is, I'm going to go. Yeah. Right? So now around 8 p.m. that night, uh, steady rainfall began seriously hampering efforts to find little Dennis. Though by now, more than a dozen hikers had joined Mr. Martin and the park rangers in their desperate search, not so much as a footprint could be found. And of course, after the rain, there was no shot of that. Um, hours wore into days, and by day two, over 1,400 people were combing the park for the missing child. Mr. Martin refused to leave. He stayed in the park camping for almost two months. Oh, wow. Um, trying to find his boy, and he almost literally left no stone unturned. Um, he even dug up the shrub Dennis had hidden behind. That's how sure he was that there's just there's no nothing. fucking way the boy could have made it to the tree line without being seen from where yeah. he was standing. There just wasn't. Um, uh, where was I? Now, the only items anyone ultimately found during the search were a couple of footprints, later dismissed as Mr. Martin's, uh, a sock and a shoe that were thought to have belonged to Dennis, but that's mm. it. Uh, the FBI got involved, which is not unusual. It's a missing persons case, and so that's their jurisdiction. Especially kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was... Uh, He's too young to have chosen to disappear. Exactly. Now, what's unusual is the fact that five days after Dennis's disappearance, the Green Berets flew into the park on Huey helicopters and set up base in Spence Field. They used a private comm channel and refused to interact with either the FBI or local law enforcement, period. 
Um, Who called them in and what exactly their marching orders were have never been revealed despite frequent requests by researchers under the Freedom of of Information Information Act. And and the requests, this is an important point, um, the requests have not been denied, they've just been unanswered. Just completely ignored. Completely. And this is an almost 50-year-old case. Wow. So, and that's, yeah. So, that's fucking crazy. The fucking Green Berets were there. And weirdly, their op- they, most of the, their operations took place at night. And they wouldn't tell mm. anyone what they were doing. And they wouldn't help. They wouldn't, like, they, where, are they there searching for Dennis? They, no one knew they were there. But they, oddly, they set up in Spencefield. Now... Now, after reading about Dennis's disappearance in the newspaper, Mr. Key, remember, that's the guy that saw the strange fairy man near Rowan Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Key put two and two together and contacted Park Services about the shaggy man he'd seen just two hours away, or uh, just two hours after the boy had gone missing, less than five miles away. Right. He offered to meet the rangers at Rowan Creek and show them the exact spot. Amazingly, the rangers declined, opting instead to take a statement from Mr. Key in his home. This was the last Mr. Key would hear from anyone connected with the search in an official capacity. Now, why a potentially vital lead would go ignored is puzzling to say the least, especially given that no other leads were forthcoming. They were not able to find anything. And these were park rangers looking for a six-year-old boy who'd gone missing. And they're like, eh, probably nothing. And um, now (laughs) many... This guy thinks it's Bigfoot, whatever. Well, so many believe that the park rangers knew more than they were uh, letting on and didn't want Mm -hmm. Mr. Key to revisit the site for fear he'd stumble on something incriminating. Um, But whether there's any truth to this, I think we can all agree that their actions were negligent at best. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Bewildered and angry, Mr. Key took his story to the press. The Knoxville News Sentinel, however, erroneously quoted him as saying he thought the shaggy man was a moonshiner, which he hadn't, which he didn't say. Um, the story also makes mention... But it's mention, Knoxville, so it's... Right, well, so the story also makes mention that Park Services felt any correlation between Dennis's disappearance and what the Key family saw near Rowan Creek was improbable. Uh, Mr. Martin read the story later and was absolutely fucking livid. He pressed sure. Park Services for an explanation. Why on earth would they dismiss the key encounter uh, as irrelevant? Officials just shrugged uh, shrugged off his concerns and said simply that the timelines didn't match up. But this was clearly ridiculous. A grown man could leisurely walk from where Dennis was last seen um, uh, to the site of Mr. Key's encounter in about an hour and a half. Right. Um, and that's a leisurely walk, like right. a five-mile walk down this path hour and a half. Easy. The Green Berets and the FBI cleared out in August, uh, though due to Mr. Martin hounding them, Park Services didn't officially end their search until September. Wow. Um, Dennis was never found. Yeah. His remains were never found. No evidence of him being attacked by a mountain lion. And we'll get into all that. Like, people just don't vanish quite so completely. They're always found, or some trace of them that suggests how they died is found. There's no blood, no bloody clothing, no no marks on anything, nothing. All we have is the fact that this little boy disappeared in full view. Like, he was hiding behind a shrub, but where the fuck he could have gone... Like stepping away from that shrub, you know, they, they, there's just he just seemed to zap out of existence, right. and um, and it just happens to correlate two hours later that this this fucking family saw this weird looking dude, yeah. um, hanging out near Rowan Creek. Um, now enter former police detective David Pilates. After 20 years in law enforcement, 18 of which were spent with the San Jose PD, Pilates retired to focus on writing. 
Not perhaps the sort of books you'd expect an ex-cop to write, though. His self-published series of books entitled The Missing 411 have earned him a polarizing reputation among fellow researchers. Pallades, an accomplished outdoorsman, felt compelled to write these books, he says, after being approached by a park ranger who told him several search and rescue missions he'd uh, been part of over the years defied rational explanation. Now, mm. statistical analysis suggests such, such disappearances, as the ranger described, aren't, strictly speaking, anomalous, but Pallades couldn't help but see something more mysterious and more sinister at work. Right. It's not unusual for some people to go missing in the wilderness. Children wander off and die of exposure, as I said. People get eaten by predators. Adults fall victim to the same fate year after year. But what, Pallades asks, about experienced hunters, survivalists, otherwise capable wilderness experts who vanish without a trace in areas they know like the back of their hand? Predators leave traces, after all. Bones, bloodstained clothing, personal effects. And what about the Dennis Martins of the world who vanish into thin air in full view of witnesses? Pallades is not satisfied to lump these together with more garden-variety missing persons cases. Something he maintains is going on that defies common sense. Forty years after Dennis Martin vanished into the Smoky Mountains, David Pallades, now researching a book on similar cases, uh, this was the beginning of his writing for Missing 411, tracked down the boy's parents and paid them a visit. They were still living in the same house where little Dennis had grown up. Um, Mr. Martin was deeply reluctant to indulge him. He and his wife had promised each other years ago never to speak about Dennis again. But Pallades held his ground, assuring the sullen old man he wanted only to understand why this kind of thing happened. He asked for 15 minutes. Mr. Martin told his wife to go inside and sat with David on the porch for what turned out to be quite a bit longer. He told Pallades that vital information was in fact withheld from him during and after the search. He said the government agencies involved behaved as though they were in competition with each other, each racing to bring the case to a conclusion, a conclusion Martin felt involved burying the truth rather than actually finding his son. He himself, that's Mr. Martin, had tracked down Carson Brewer, the reporter who had interviewed Mr. Key, uh, and Brewer told Martin the paper deliberately twisted Mr. Key's account of the creature, or the thing he saw, to avoid being made a laughingstock. What Mr. Key had described was clearly neither a bear nor a, quote, big shaggy moonshiner, but the Knoxville News Sentinel felt compelled to skew the details in favor of a more conventional explanation. As it was, the story printed already raised questions most people were uncomfortable with. Imagine, Carson said, if they'd pushed it further and been more honest about what right. the key family said they saw one of those details and this is a really fucking important one and that never made publication the figure key described had been carrying what appeared to be a bundle on its shoulder oh oh shit mm -hmm. now, that's talking, kind of a big deal that's kind of a big fucking deal and that's what he told the park rangers too and they're like eh, we don't see a connection yeah. we think it's aliens so yeah, there's no we way think that it's, it couldn't be bigfoot it's ghosts um, it's fucking <laughs> ridiculous, right? Um, now, talking to Pallades on his porch, Mr. Martin also pointed out the untimely death of a guy named Jim Reich, and maybe Reich, um, the FBI agent in charge of missing children's cases for the Tennessee-North Carolina region. Oddly, state lines aren't what determined Reich's jurisdiction in these cases. Rather, they were set, it seems, by the boundaries of the Smoky Mountains National Park. Martin was in frequent contact with Reich for 15 years, hounding him about his case, from the time of Dennis's disappearance until the night Reich shot himself in, 18, in 1984. Now, why the grizzled veteran took his own life, we don't know, but presumably that kind of job does take its toll. Right. Um, Pallades later interviewed retired park ranger Dwight McCarter, who'd been part of the search for Dennis. One of the best trackers in the business, McCarter confirmed unequivocally that Park Services and the FBI had lied to Mr. Martin when they told him the Key family sighting was irrelevant. 
He and Mr. Martin had, in fact, made the trek between Spencefield and Rowan Creek themselves to prove authorities wrong. Still, their concerns were ignored. Hmm. What do you think happened to Dennis? Pallades asked him. I think he was abducted, he said. By what? David asked. That's the million-dollar question. In breaking down the Dennis Martin case, Pallades rightly circles back again and again to certain questions. Why didn't park authorities allow Mr. Key to show them where he'd seen a large, hairy man carrying a fucking bundle over his shoulder? Why didn't they know... Uh, did they know the odds of finding the boy alive were non-existent at that point, and that playing up Mr. Key's story would only spur on Mr. Martin to ask more uncomfortable questions? Why did none of the agencies work together to help solve the disappearance of a six-year-old boy? What exactly, if they were competing, were they competing for? Mm -hmm. did, now, did Dennis Martin simply wander off? This seems unlikely, given the sheer volume of searchers working around the clock for 15 days, and it doesn't explain why a body was never found. Even if the poor child had succumbed to a wild predator, one of the 1,400 people combing the park for him would have stumbled upon remains, or the suggestion of how he died. Predators, again, leave traces. Mr. Martin himself was never considered a suspect, which makes sense. He, his father, his nine-year-old son, uh, which is Dennis's brother, and the other members of the family were all cross-examined to the satisfaction of the FBI. Mr. Martin's story and what he saw and how we handle it checked out to the nines. Mm -hmm. so, so if you rule out these explanations, what's left? Well, some posit a community of feral human beings living secretly deep within the uh, mountains, off the grid and outside the bounds of polite civilization, to say the least. This could account for why the Green Berets were called in. They specialize in unconventional warfare, which may be necessary when dealing with feral fucking people, one would think. Now, before we dismiss this theory out of hand, there is an unsubstantiated rumor, but a persistent one, that a park ranger in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was once attacked by such a feral human being, and that the attack is what resulted in park services being granted the weapons and jurisdiction to make arrests. That did change at some point, that the public was never told why. Park rangers just used to be, you know, park rangers, but then they were allowed to carry arms and to make rest, arrests at a certain point. And mm. it's thought that's because one of them was attacked by a fucking feral person living in the woods. Well, there's the whole thing with the, and like, you know, Appalachian Mountains, mm -hmm. the, the, the accent in the mm -hmm. Appalachian Mountains mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, people say it's the most like what... Shakespearean English accent would have sounded like because that's just how isolated they are. Right, they they literally moved. They're like, this looks like where we're from. Let's stay up here in the mountains, mm -hmm. and they never came down. So they live there, imagine? they stay there, they don't interact with anybody else. Mm -hmm. It's very, very clan like, mm -hmm. and so that it hasn't adjusted at all. Uh, and so, it, and the, you know, and that's that whole thing too. And you know, Jack's talked about it. Like there are certain areas of the mountain you don't go because you don't know who's up there. And that's, you know. I remember going to Arkansas once for a convention, and the my handler for the weekend was a lovely young lady, uh, and she was telling me stories as we were driving from the airport through, you know, these these sort of back towns, and she was going, yeah, yeah, I've gone up here all my life, and of course I'm like, you ever seen a Bigfoot? You ever feel like, come on, towns like this, there's always experiences. And she was like, no, but there are things, there are people here we call grinners, grinners, and if you see a grinner, you just keep on walking. Oh, She's no. like, if you go, if you go, if you go camping or hiking in these woods, and you come across someone who just smiles at you, and they don't speak, they're like, yeah, there are people that live back there way off the grid that have never set foot on a mm. road in their life. You know, that have never, like, mm -hmm. and, but, and if you step in their territory, they're going to be like, hmm, you look like good eating, maybe. Right. <laughs> you know, or, or at the very least, you're an outside threat. 
So, now obviously concerns about a potential decline in tourism would certainly make keeping the existence of such a feral community secret, because these national parks, they make upwards of like $400 million a year yeah. across the country, of course, not just Smoky Mountains. Now, on the flip side of this argument, others theorize that national parks indulge the bloodlust of certain depraved wealthy patrons by giving them free reign of the area, fresh supply of victims, and um, uh, by turning the other cheek when it happens. Now, I, that seems a little conspiracy theory. Uh, pizza gate to me but right. you know again it, it does it's weird that it's weird that like it, it seems to me like if there is a feral community of people out there why wouldn't you just why wouldn't park services be like well yeah just treat them like you would bears keep your distance you know right. bring things that i mean it seems odd that they wouldn't just treat it like another hazard right and, and just shut up about it and like and even when a six-year-old boy goes missing they wouldn't even tell the father like oh here if you just keep it secret Here's, we'll tell you, there's people that we think live back there and they what did it, you know, but I guess, I don't know, it's just, it's just weird. So, yeah. now, to many, the obvious explanation is that Dennis Martin was abducted by some kind of creature, which you have to remember, he went, he just fucking vanished. Right. Behind a bush. He didn't wander off and was, he didn't seem to have wandered off and taken, and to be taken out of eyeline. Um... Specifically, they, some people think he was taken by Bigfoot. Now, before you dismiss that as absurd, and you're in your rights to know that, though rare, such reported kidnappings dot the Sasquatch literature going back as far as the early 19th century. Pop culture tends to minimize the Bigfoot question to one of whether an undiscovered primate wanders the North American wilderness, but certain accounts less well-known by the general public, suppressed perhaps by Bigfoot researchers struggling to make their field respectable, enlarge the issue past what many can comfortably fit into their worldview. The mind-boggling rash of Bigfoot sightings in Westmoreland, Pennsylvania in the late 1970s, for example, eschew the typical pattern of furtive glimpses of, uh, and massive footprints to include, of all things, UFOs, shadowy government agencies, and the notorious MIB, but that's another story for another time. It, there's, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, uh, suffice, to, suffice it to say, skeptical as I am, the mountain, uh, the mountain of reliable documentation about such Bigfoot occurrences does give me pause. In his own ponderous diaries about life in the Cascade Mountains, 19th century naturalist uh, Elkina Walker writes of certain beliefs held by the Spokane tribes he was in contact with, revolving around a race of supernaturally endowed cannibals said to dwell beyond the hills. You just sound like they have real big dicks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a race of swinging dicks. You! Uh, according, according to legends, uh, these terrifying wild men descend from their hiding places like shadows and carry men off into the night, undoubtedly to pad their menu. Now, in his acclaimed two-volume work, The Wilderness Hunter, Theodore Roosevelt includes a story told him by an Idaho trapper named Baum, or Bauman, excuse me, B-A-U-M-A-N, Bauman. Mm -hmm. uh, Bauman maintained that years earlier, he and a fellow trapper had been besieged by a massive man-like creature that walked on two legs. It ransacked their campsite while they were out laying beaver traps and menaced them from the shadows that night as they huddled around the fire. In the morning, the two men found tracks and debris nearby suggesting a bipedal creature whose size and strength scarcely bore thinking about. Bauman staked out on his own uh, to tend to the beaver traps, expecting to meet his companion back at the campsite later that evening. Here is Theodore Roosevelt's account of what Bauman discovered okay. in his own words. And I just love the writing, so forgive me if it's a lengthy passage, but it's also fucking terrifying. As he hurried toward camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. 
There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness, which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing toward it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its, uh, with its forepaws while it buried its teeth into his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Like a dog when it gets something stinky, smells mm-hmm. something stinky, and it's mm-hmm. like, I gotta roll in that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh my gosh. Now, whether or not we're ready to believe that, as Pallades uh, uh, does, argue, and whether or not we're ready to believe that, that Bigfoot or some supernatural creature we're unaware of, is responsible for Dennis's appearance. I think Pallades does argue persuasively. Uh, in fact, does argue into my in my opinion, he demonstrates that multiple organizations actively withhold details and or disseminate falsehoods in twelve similar cases in the Whoa. Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And twelve in the Smoky similar, Mountains. In the Smoky Mountains. Wow. And the question remains, why? So that's the stirring of Dennis Martin. Special yes. thank you to, uh, there's a YouTuber named Bob Gimlin who does a lot of really well thought out um, from a scientific perspective and just like as a, he's a, he's just a proper journalist in my opinion yeah. on Bigfoot and he, there's a lot of, uh, he has a really good one on Dennis Martin that a lot of my information came from and I backed up with other research too, but it was, um, yeah, check him out. Bob Gimlin. Bob Gimlin. He's got That's... a very, he's got a fun voice. He's just very, he doesn't try to dramatize. He's just like, hi, I'm Bob Gimlin. And I do this. And oh, nice. here's my findings. And right. Yeah, Rick super Steves. smart, very well thought out. Um, and because uh, I'm, I'm still on the fence about the Bigfoot question. I sometimes yeah. depends on when you ask me. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I, I totally buy it. I don't know. And it, some of their ones, I want to do another story. The, the, the Westmoreland, Pennsylvania sightings that were mm, in the '70s, mm-hmm. a whole rash of them. It's one of the weirdest fucking things. It's, it's, it's not just like, oh, there's just an undiscovered primate. Like, there's right. clearly. Something. If it's to be believed, there is something supernatural going now, on. Now, what it could be is the government coming in and doing the primates so that there's a sighting mm-hmm. to cover up what's really happening. <sighs> then what's really happening? I don't know. <laughs> like, that's fucking, I mean, you know, it's weird. It's it like my father like used the... to say about like UFOs. He's like, it's the government. They they just don't want... They, they create this whole... They're working on technology, like new aeronautical technology, and they don't want people to to know about it, so they cover it up by doing UFO sightings and stuff. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, the last thing you want is people watching the night sky all the time, and UFOs make them do that, so why not create a better distraction? Right. Not one that leads them to the fucking question. Right. But anyway, that's... But who knows? Yeah, who knows? But I would say, because you think about kids, right? Six mm-hmm. years old, he's 
done this several times where he jumps out of the bushes and scares the kids. He's doing the same thing over and over. <laughs> How long is he going to do that before he's like, I need to change this up? Right. Um, some kids for a long time, some kids not. And so, you know, I think it's pretty easy for me to believe he would have hidden and found a way to the tree line. Dad's talking to Grandpa. He's yeah. looking, but he's not watching 100% of the time. Yeah. Maybe he makes a dart for the tree line, and he's in the tree line when something happens. Um, you know, if, if a person took him... It's just hard it's, to believe that trackers would not find evidence of yeah. that. Because a six-year-old is not going to be a ninja. Right. And, and, even, and most people who think they're being really stealthy that could maybe fool just a normal person that's watching their kids is not going like, to be able to cover up their tracks sufficiently to stump a professional tracker. Because right. those motherfuckers, yeah, if it true. hasn't been raining, and it wasn't raining for several hours. So yeah. they did have a few hours where people, including park rangers, were helping them find. That's when they found things like the socks. But they only found footprints of Mr. Martin's. And if they could find some of his footprints, then they could have, they should have been able to see some evidence of a six-year-old boy being taken or wandering off, whether Martin, Mr. Martin saw it or not. Right. Like, but the fact that there was no trace, Nothing. that's what's yeah. so stunning. Because otherwise it's easy to believe like, okay, well, where was the bush? Like maybe the kid was just hiding behind there and maybe, you know, I was thinking I could see a scenario where maybe Mr. Martin was walking toward the bush and as he was walking toward the bush, it did some, it, the, you know, as he was getting closer, is, the, the yeah. perspective, uh, you know, did obscure the you know whatever route that that dennis decided to take but there would have been presumably some, well, some that's traces the question, of that. like okay if he just disappeared from the bush that's nothing like there there's something else going on and yeah, there clearly. are stories about people walking and then they just disappear right in front of someone's mm -hmm. face mm -hmm. and that is you know mm -hmm. what's going on there not necessarily with the Bigfoot or the, you know, man dressed as Bigfoot or anything mm -hmm. like that. That is more intriguing as the just straight up disappearing. Well, and I, it, it the it's thing is, it makes sense. Like, well, the connection to the, the, the weird looking dude who may or may not have been Bigfoot, the fact that he was carrying something over his right. shoulder, which was clearly big enough for the right dimensions to have been a child. Right. And that right before seeing him, the Key family heard a scream, not a child scream, but what they said was like the sickening awful scream that mm -hmm. that he said i think in so many words when he was when he talked about it later that it wasn't it wasn't the sign of a child right. it was it was the sound of a creature or of a of a grown man screaming like in agony which just i mean again i'm obviously creating a story out of facts i don't have right. but it's uh, but then who's screaming well maybe the Bigfoot like accidentally killed the boy and was in agony okay. over that when he just happened to be seen by the key or it happened to be seen by the keys. Who, who knows? Right. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. odd. Or maybe, maybe, you know, if it was a Bigfoot or some creature or a feral person, maybe that, maybe they saw the key family and tried to scare them off with mm -hmm. a scream, you know, designed to yeah. like ward off, you know, and then, cause they clearly it knew it was watching them because it, you know, uh, it knew it they hiding. were watching it because it tried to hide. Yeah. Just odd, but it's weird. Like the fact, but the, the fact that the park services—that's what b troubles me—is the fact that the park services didn't see any relevance in it. And yeah. I guess I, on the one level, I could see that yeah, you know, some crazy motherfucker saw Bigfoot and thinks Bigfoot may have taken him. I could see them going, "No, we we have a search on our hands for a missing boy, and this motherfucker's trying to make it about Bigfoot." Yeah. But it's a family of three people that saw it, not just one lone person, which would seem to give it a little more credibility. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily, and you could even even say, well, maybe he 
the fact that they had no other leads at That's all. my thing. And the yeah. fact that, like, at least looking at that going, like, why did no grown human being in the Rangers or the FBI go, well, he may say he saw a Bigfoot, but we think he saw something and it's worth looking into. So let's right. let him take we his, We literally you know, have nothing else to go on. Yeah. So let's yeah. go check that like out. Like, Bob Giblin says it in his YouTube channel. He's like, when you have no leads... Any lead is your lead. Right. And what they didn't pursue it. Wonder... They just went to his home. They were interested enough to come and get a statement. Yeah. So they didn't just laugh him off. They sent people out to his home, which well, like, and you at know, least... an hour or so away, and took a statement, but would not, but did not want him to take them at back to the scene. they told him they didn't want him to take him back. But that doesn't mean they didn't go out there anyway. Oh, yeah. No, no, you no. You know, no. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that is fascinating. It's fascinating. And there's, and this is... Um, there's a whole bunch of these disappearances that this guy, David Pilates, has been researching for mm-hmm. quite a while now, several of his books. They're no longer in print. Um, you can buy them, but they're real expensive on an mm. Amazon Marketplace. Yeah. I think the the Missing 411, the first in the series, is like goes for like 50 bucks or something. Oh, so geez. I have not read them. Um, nice. But I've listened to a number of talks that David Pilates has given and seen some interviews with him. He's called into like Coast to Coast a number of times and told his stories. And, um, Space but Dennis, Coast? Huh? Coast to Coast? No, just Coast to Coast with George Norrie. Oh, all right. <laughs> Fine. Um, but yeah, that's that's the really creepy, tragic awesome. story of uh, little Dennis Martin disappearing in the Great Smoky Mountains. Thank you so much. Mm, mm, mm. And thank you, everyone, yes. for listening to our episode. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Good, this is good for I, I hope that Charles now. liked it. But. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I bet he did. Uh, yeah, uh, if you like a podcast, give us the reviews. Mm-hmm. Go mm-hmm. give us all the good reviews. Reviews are important. Yeah, they them. are. They're helpful. Um, and, you know, check us out. Send us your stories, your ghost stories, your real encounters. If you have a Bigfoot encounter, let we'll us know. We'll take those, too. Like, Absolutely. we'll take any kind of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, ghosts are our mainstay. I have somebody who has a come. good... Bigfoot story. Yeah. I just need to get their permission to use it. Oh, I'm I'm really and it's I'm the first all about time Bigfoot. I don't know whether I believe in it or not, but I'm 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 just enough on the fence that I want to. It's the first time I've ever heard it that I was like, oh shit. Oh god. Uh, yeah. So okay. let me get the okay. You're gonna I tell me in private, and then maybe you'll. I mean, obviously. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, and I uh, yeah, do all of the things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Are you and, ready? And go to our go to our website and yeah. submit if you have stories. And submit your Please stories. Do. All that stuff. All right. Yes, I'm ready ready for my quote. What is my quote, madam? Your quote is, and this is in honor of us doing a road trip tomorrow to go to Houston. Yeah. (laughs) Which, by the time this will be out, this comes out, we'll be back from Houston. Hopefully. There are 106 miles to Chicago. We have a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Blues Brothers. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. right. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, that's Did awesome. you know Dan Aykroyd's original draft of that was like 500 fucking pages long? This does not surprise yeah, me. Yeah, he like he just he wanted to write this crazy fucking epic. It was like the like basically the Odyssey. And and <laughs> I guess when he gave it to John Landis, was it John Landis he gave it to? I'm, I'm liking now. He was like, okay, you've got to parse this down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like the original this. manuscript, legend has it, the original manuscript was many many hundreds of pages long. Also, so, Dan Aykroyd's haunted house is mm-hmm. why Ghostbusters is a movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, knew that I love that too. That's so cool. We'll have to go over that maybe sometime yeah. in the future. Fascinating guy, Dan yeah. Aykroyd. You know, he was—I don't know if this is still the case—but he was long considered to be probably one of the richest men in Hollywood. 
I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's because he just invested and he produced a lot. Like he just, he was in the upper, like he was in the 1% in Hollywood. He was the 1% of the 1%. Whoa. Yeah, and I think that, I don't know if that's still true or not. It's funny when you mentioned no you sp- mentioned Sp- uh, Space Ghost, Coast to Coast. The the voice actor for Space Ghost, I met him years ago at a convention, mm-hmm. and he was talking about um, <laughs> he was talking about meeting Dan Aykroyd at a bar uh, that Aykroyd owns in Toronto. I think it was Toronto, it might yeah. have been Vancouver. And uh, they just he did, he did a kick ass version. Of kick-ass. I didn't know what that bar is because I'm going to Toronto. I know, right? And uh, yeah, I think there's Dan Aykroyd vodka now. He's, he's there is a, it's the stuff with the skull yeah, yeah. it's good he's an interesting guy he knows his paranormal stuff too he does. and he does he's done UFO research like he's a he's a really interesting guy I would love to sit down and have a drink a with a little chit chat yeah. with him yeah that would be good oh my gosh that's awesome okay well yeah, yeah. Sorry, so, so Blues <laughs> Brothers if you haven't seen the Blues Brothers though it's really good and you should yeah, check it out yeah you really should it's I love that, fantastic I love that our listeners walk away with movie and book recommendations I know I hope that they enjoy them <laughs> alright <laughs> well thank you guys and remember it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on, on.